My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. 2023 is finally here, and I can't think of a better way to kick off this year. This week in the studio, I welcome a man who spent over 23 years in the United States military. He is a former enlisted and an Airborne Ranger Infantry Officer. He spent a lifetime studying the science of killing in combat, which led him to being an expert witness and a consultant in state and federal courts. He's testified before the U.S. Senate and Congress and has even been cited in an address by the President of the United States. His books are legendary in the military, law enforcement, and first responder world, and he's here tonight to explain the truth about lethal combat, violent visual imagery, terrorism, and PTS. Please welcome Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. What's going on, my friend? Good to be on board with you and all your listeners here. Good good night. I I am so happy that you're here. Uh, There is so much to talk about with this because there's so many things that you talk about and that you have studied in life that have become hot button topics, even more, I would say, in the past like five years, and especially the past two to three years in the law enforcement community. Um, As we were talking before the show, I told you that when I went to the police academy over 16 years ago, that you were talked about almost every day by the DTPT instructors and having that warrior mindset and being able to walk away from a violent encounter and things like that. As we know, within the past about two years to three years, um, that has all changed. And so I want to get into that tonight with you. Talk about the difference in everything that's going on in the world, how it's changed for you, maybe instructing in this or you teaching in this, or if it's changed anything at all. But how we always start these interviews, I want to go back to your early years. I want to know how you thought about the military. Did you come from a military family? And what was it that put you on this path to doing this job for the rest of pretty much your adult life? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, I've hit the point now it's been 25 years since I retired at right at 24 years in the army. And now 25 years out here on the road, uh, I'm on the road over 200 days a year, get home one or two nights a week, a conjugal visit, clean underwear back out. <laughs> I'm, uh, we'll talk later too. I'm 66, 66 years old, and it's my prayer I can do it for another 20 years because things are bad, DJ. Things are crazy bad. And, you know, and I, I believe if we love our kids and we love our grandkids, right? My oldest grandson just graduated basic training. I'll be a great grandfather. Like what I, If we love our nation, we love our God, it's time to give 100% because the wheels are coming off the bus. Things are coming unglued. And, uh, and, and I want to give you an idea for that right up front. And I appreciate you saying about, you know, that my books are still required reading. Uh, my book on combat, last I heard, uh, issued in the DA Academy, issued in the Marshalls Academy, required reading in over 100 uh, academies nationwide. But this, this attack on law enforcement that's taken place in recent years is, is, is tragic and is a terrible, terrible price. 
And, uh, you know, I, I talk about it in my book, uh, Assassination Generation. I was uh, invited to the White House uh, as part of President Trump's roundtable on violent video games and uh, had the chance to put one book in the president's hand. This is a book I gave him, Assassination Generation. Invited back to the White House, the brief vice president Pence. Again, I had one book to put in his hand. I put this book in his hand. And, and let's kind of lay a, a foundation for this. Uh, right up until the early 1960s, Hollywood, television, they all operated by code. And the code said, we know the stories we tell have an impact on our society. And we know we have a responsibility to tell stories that have a positive impact. A lot of the code could be said in three words, crime doesn't pay. Criminals will not be depicted in a positive manner. Law enforcement will not be depicted in a negative manner. And, and right up until the early 1960s, that was the code. And then they threw it away and they said, we have no responsibility for the stories we tell. But a 30-second commercial for vast amounts of money, it'll, it changed the behavior of vast numbers of people. So the narrative began to change that the criminals are the good guys and the cops are the bad guys. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know the, the, the guy that was just elected to be senator of Pennsylvania said, you don't understand. All these people in prison, they're... They're, they're like, you know, a Shawshank Redemption. They're, they're Morgan Freeman. They're all Morgan Freeman. He believes that. He thinks it's true. And then, uh, and then we, had, uh, we, we had Denzel Washington, the most beloved black actor, playing a bad cop. Training Day, one of the most evil movies ever made. Denzel's a bad cop. They're all bad. I've seen Training Day. People believe that. And here's the key. The stories we tell really do have an impact. And right up until we're six, seven years old, it is really, really hard to tell the difference between reality, television, movies, and dreams. And I tell my audience, I say, you know, my wife, a little, or my, my son, my son's in his 40s. A little while back, he, he asked my wife, he said, did I tell you that? Or did I just dream it? She said, well, you must have dreamed it. I don't remember. You ever been there? As adults, maybe we've been there. Well, as children, that's a constant state. So when they were three years old and they watched Morgan Freeman, they had wrongfully convicted, you know, Shawshank Redemption. It was real. It really happened to them. And when they saw Denzel Washington doing evil things, it was real. And, and, and here's the key to understand the terrible, terrible price we paid. No civilization can survive in an environment in which we believe the law is evil and criminals are the good guys. And we've got to understand this, this baseline foundation is, is eating at the fabric of our civilization. So, you know, we talk about violent crime. And it's really important to get a feel for this. Uh, we use the murder rate, and it's being held down by medical technology. Today, cops all carry tourniquets. Cops slaps on a tourniquet, saves a crime victim's life. We prevented a murder. So the leaps and bounds of life-saving technology, we got one good data point. We've got a UMass Harvard study came out in 2002, a peer-reviewed journal, between the 1960s and the 1990s, medical technology cut the murder rate to a third or a quarter would otherwise be. So to compare the murders of the 90s to the 60s, multiply by factor of, uh, multiply the murders today by a factor of three or four. And the leaps and bounds of life-saving technology since the 1990s is astounding. Tourniquets alone have cut the murder rate in half. So. So every year we're told the murder rate, and it's a lie. And I, I told the vice president, I told the president, we're lying. 
Imagine if somebody said, your grandpa made 25 cents an hour. You make $20 an hour. Look how good you got it. We all immediately see the lie. Something called inflation. They say, well, you know, murder was up 30% last year, but you know, it's in the long run, it's not that big a deal. Yes, it is. So in 2020, the George Floyd riots, the whole George Floyd narrative, this, this evil cops out there killing George Floyd and, and a generation were two, three, four, five, six year old. And they saw George, they, they saw the, the cop night after night after night, putting a knee on that guy's neck. And it was real. Every time was real. That little five-year-old says, why do they keep doing that? Why is he still doing that? Why does it keep happening? And, and so we've raised a generation that's gone to new depths of, of terror. But here's the key. Never in history has a homicide rate been up more than about 12% a year in the 1960s. In 2020, homicides were up 30%. But if you allow for medical technology, it's actually orders of magnitude worse at. And if 2021 has stayed the same, it'd be bad. 2021 is up another 4%. I told the vice president, I said, just like we have inflation adjusted dollars, we need medically adjusted murders. Now, the, the vice president, Pence, very smart guy, governor, right? He said, what about the aggravated assault rate? I said, sir, it's too easy to fudge that data. Where do we draw that magic line between ag assault and a simple assault? It's like great inflation in the school. We'll make ag assault say what even wanted to say. But dead is dead. It's hard to fudge that data if we allow for medical technology. So the wheels have come up the bus. The last couple of years have come unglued. Cops are leaving the profession. Nobody's joining them. It's not true everywhere. I had a sheriff tell me that in his county, his deputies can't pay for a meal because there's always somebody that walks up and pays for the meal in the restaurant. So why would you stay in the inner city being spit on and attacked and condemned and, and every action videotaped and every action judged when you could move to his county and have people that, that, that support you? Now, now who loses? <laughs> that city loses. And these woke cities and their woke prosecutors have absolutely eating the fiber of our civilization. It just keeps going downhill. So, so here's the critical question. Why do we keep doing it? Why, do, why, why would a cop hang in there? Why would anybody keep doing what they do? Well, like I said, you know, I, I, I've been married for 47 years. And waiting at home for me is my high school sweetheart. She's 15. I was 17 when I proposed to her. We, we are from Arkansas. Two years later, she married a crazy army paratrooper. Then they tried with me for 47 years. And yet I, I truly get home a couple of nights a week and back on the road. And why does she support that? Why do I do that? Because we love our children. We love our grandchildren. We love our nation. We love our way of life. And love means the worse it gets, the harder you fight. Look, you get a sick baby. You abandon your family. Oh, a sick baby didn't sign up for that. I'm out of here. No. You had a sick baby. You'd empty the bank account. You, you know, you'd start a Kickstarter fund. You or your wife would would leave their work to be with the kid full time. That's what love means. And I tell people, maybe the saddest country western song ever written, Kenny Rogers, you picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. Remember that one? Yes. You picked, you, you picked a fine time to leave I don't know leave. if I would pick that as the saddest, but. Well, well, think about this. Think about this. You picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. Four hungry children in a crop. And a crop in the fields. I've had some bad times, lived through some sad times. This time the hurting won't heal. You picked a hard time, a bad time to leave. Now, the idea of a mother of four hungry children 
abandoning her family to pick some guy up in a bar. It's just heartbreaking. Okay, maybe there's other things sadder than that, but I, off the top of my list. So, so if we love our family, we love our community, we love our, and nobody becomes a cop for the money. Now you were an MP, and then you became a cop. Uh, yeah, nobody does that for money. Oh, they want to be a cop because they can push people around. <laughs> no, just the opposite. Cops have people in their face all the time, and they can't do much about it. Uh, why would anybody want to be a cop? Well, so let me ask you then, because we, yeah. we talked about the, the questions kind of melded together. But back yeah. when you were growing up, yeah. how was it different? Why was the military okay? Because let me yeah. use the example for you. You're talking about cops getting spit on, yelled at, recorded all the time. As yeah. you're growing up and you see the Vietnam era, because you came in during the Cold War era, yeah. as you see the Vietnam era, there's there's a lot of similarities there. They're oh, yeah. just on a different kind of path, I would say. Oh, but so well spotted. Yes. But when you when you bring it up that way, why did they do it? Why did you join the military? Because yeah. it's the same it, it's the same kind of question and I think no matter how good or how bad it gets, that will always be the question. Yeah. Why do it? Yeah. You know, I enlisted in 1974. I was, I was 18 years old. I had uh, I basically dropped out of high school in uh, in '73 uh, and uh, worked on a Wildcat oil rig. I was I was 17 years old in the Panhandle of Nebraska. Lied about my age, working 12-hour shifts on a Wildcat oil rig, the most dangerous thing I've ever done. I I turned 18 and, and became a paratrooper, just infinitely safer than what I was doing. And uh, and. Uh, uh, my, my dad had been in the military. My grandpa had been in the military. You know, one of the great influencers in my life is Robert Heinlein in a book called Starship Troopers. And, uh, you know, at one point in time, it, there was a Force Com officer's recommended reading list. And it was like the only science fiction book on the reading list. And if you had 10 infantry officers in one room, five of them were trying to shove Starship Troopers down the throat of the other five. Uh, they're a very influential book for me and the idea of, of service to your nation, of, of answering the call. But in 1974, uh, while, while I was in basic training, we had basically the fall of Vietnam. We had veterans being spit on. We had the guys saying, don't wear your low quarters off, you know, off base. Don't you know, grow your hair as long as you can. If the girls think you're in the military, you, you know, you'll never get a date. You know, it, it, and it was just this media drumbeat that they were evil and they're committing evil acts. And they really were spit on an attack. My book, uh, my book uh, uh, on killing, half a million copies sold worldwide, uh, cited in scholarly works over 3,000 times, translated into seven languages. We just sold the, the Ukrainian rights. All the expats who went to Ukraine said, this is the book you guys need right now. And, uh, and when we talk about how they really did spit on those Vietnam veterans, it really did happen almost universally. Condemned, attacked, neglected. We're, we're almost making up for that today by telling them, welcome home. Uh, you know, a generation would have given anything to have that kind of a, a welcome. They're, they're almost embarrassed by it today. I tell them, just roll with it, guys. But the time has come to treat our cops the same way, to tell them thank you for your service, to tell them thank you for putting up with this and putting your life on the line. And last year, we had essentially all-time record number of cops murdered in the line of duty. But that's all the body armor, all the tactics, all the training. Imagine in war today, 
losing as many people as we lost in Vietnam. No body armor, no medical technology. Imagine, imagine that. That's where we're at. We're losing as many cops today as we did in the darkest years of the 1960s. And the year-over-year increase in cops, remember, body armor is holding down the number of dead cops. They're being ambushed, massacred, executed. Five dead cops in Dallas, four dead cops in Baton Rouge, both by identical perpetrators. Uh, an angry black male who's going to pay them back for all the terrible things that they've done. Uh, and, and, and we've got, you know, we, we, we've got this, this narrative that the cops are evil. And, and what happens if nobody wants to do that job? What happens if nobody wants to be a cop? So why do we do it anytime? Well, I came in in 1974 and the army was broken. Uh, the druggies ran the barracks. If you wanted to live in the barracks and not do drugs, you had to fight. All you had to do is just, you know, do some, do a little crack, you know, smoke some dope and, and you're cool, right? If you didn't want to, sm to smoke dope, if you didn't want to, you know, snort crack, you had to fight. And the druggies ran the barracks and we couldn't get rid of the bad soldiers. Uh, I was Radar O'Reilly. I was a unit clerk. I was a, you know, a line dog and they pulled me out and said, you can type, you're smart. You're going to be the, the unit clerk. You know, and I was Radar O'Reilly. And we had packets this thick of Article 15s and counseling statements. We couldn't get rid of them because society said these people have been broken and the military is a form of social movement. And, and, and you can't get rid of this person. It's your job to fix them. You will be the form of social mobility. You will help them be better people. Well, Ronald Reagan became the president in 1980 and the military pivoted on a dime. Now, we couldn't recruit anybody. I was, uh, I'd gone to OCS, that was my goal. I was a young sergeant, I went to OCS. I served in the 9th Infantry Division in Fort Lewis, Washington. And the entire division, out of every company, every line infantry company, one platoon was zeroed out of the three line platoons. Of the two remaining platoons, one squad was zeroed out. So basically, an infantry company represented four infantry squads and the weapons platoon and, the, and that was it and, and that's how hollow we how empty we were nobody would join the military nobody would entrust their children to their lives reagan became the president and we had the expeditious discharge program we had the year analysis program we got the dirtbags out in a year and a magnificent flood of great americans joined the military and turned on a dime. It, it is one of the greatest events in history, and very few people even know about it. I was there in the middle of it. And, and we went from flat, broken, woke. We didn't use the word back then, but that's what happened. We were woke. You know, it's, you know, you can't bust that guy for doing dope. You can't bust that guy for snort little crap. That's not your business. You know, he still shows up for formation. It's not your business to, to enforce the law. And, and, and we pivoted on a dime from broke, woke, to defeating the Soviet Union. And it was the leadership at the national level. It was Ronald Reagan that made it happen. Uh, the nation was ready to take action. Well, similar things are happening now. My grandson's enlisted, magnificent young man. He went intel. He's a lot smarter than his grandpa. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I care about those kids in there, but some of the woke stuff that's going on, some of the things that are being shoved down the throat. Uh, I went to my grandson's uh, AIT graduation 
And before they honored the honor graduates, before they honored the top PT score, before they honored anything else, they took up all the people who were the sexual assault and harassment and racial representatives at every unit. <laughs> I don't know, little woke commissars. They were down in every unit whose job it was to report on any, any sexual harassment or any 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 anybody who doesn't approve of this or that or the other. And, and before they honored anybody else, this is what they did. And, and the lieutenant colonel, who was the commander, did some virtue signaling. He said, well, I got a letter from a father who was offended that, that we honored, before we honored the honor graduates, the academic honors, before the, before, we honored the people, and I'm proud to honor these people, and I'm proud to hold them up as, as models of social, social mobility. You know, you speak up against any, you know, it's not an area for debate. You speak up against uh, anything, boom, you're done, and, and you're condemned and kicked out. Uh, and so, uh, uh, who's going to entrust their children in this day and age? And, and it, like me, my grandson came in during a bad time, uh, a, a, a low point. It, recruiting is down, retention is down in our military. It'll turn around. Have faith in our nation. Have faith in our way of life, and, and it'll turn around. Well, and and it will turn around because everything's cyclical, especially bureaucracy, especially government. It, it is very cyclical. Now, when you talk about bringing those people up and talking to them, um, I, I think it's important that those people be, uh, from the way I'm understanding it, uh, I think it's important that that be on the forefront. You know, that was a big thing when I was in with sexual harassment, EEO, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Do you think, though, that we've gotten to a point where we're not doing the EEO or we're not doing, we're, we're actively looking for something is that I, I guess that's what you're trying to say with that by it, introducing those it, people yeah. virtue signaling. It's, it, it is virtue signaling, but it's far more complex than that. You know, I I did a, a presentation for all of the U.S. Army's uh, sexual harassment assault investigators and counselors, a magnificent group of men and women, and I presented them all of them on the biological response of a life and death event, how the body responds. How, you know, if there's, you know, fight or flight and feed and breed, it's that backlash. What looks like a pattern of promiscuity could actually be a normal biological response. You need to know that. Calming people down, you know, just uh, taking a knee and taking a sweep from your canteen, a drink of water. It's a powerful process that pulls you from fight or flight to rest and digest, or what they call the four Fs, fight or flight, feed and breed, you know, the four Fs. Uh, and, and if you think I'm making that up, go online and look up feed and breed. It's the most common term to refer to the parasympathetic nervous system response. And, and here we are with all of these really smart NCOs and officers who were truly diligently looking at sexual harassment and assault. And they're good people doing the best they can with this situation. But it, it is a cycle. We swing too far this way and too far that way. You know, a book I commend to your attention about the Korean War. T.R. Fernbach wrote a book called This Kind of War. And after World War II, our nation was sick of discipline and haircuts and formation and marching. They said, look at the Air Force. The Air Force doesn't salute and the Air Force doesn't play the game and they grow their hair out. And, 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 and they had Jimmy Doolittle who led the Doolittle raid in World War II. He was an aviator. The Doolittle Commission 
absolutely gutted discipline in the U.S. Army. And then the Korean War started. And the U.S. Army collapsed like a, like, a, like, a, like a house of cards. The Marine Corps, the Marine Corps held fast. <laughs> you know, you're a soldier, I'm a soldier, but doggone those Marines, you know, they stood with their values. They stuck with their virtues. And, and in the depths of the early years of the Korean War, the Marine Corps, who, who refused to play the game, who refused to, uh, to, to let go of discipline and haircuts and uniforms, you know, that Fernbach makes a point that when a, when, a, when a ship has to turn towards the enemy, only one person spins the wheel. When an aircraft turns towards the enemy, only one person steers it. Everybody else is along for the ride. When an infantry company or an MP platoon goes toward the enemy, everybody independently has to make the decision to follow orders. One of the greatest achievements in uh, the Gulf War, or in, uh, in the most recent uh, uh, incursion on Iraq, was an MP platoon that was following an, uh, a young uh, first uh, first female recipient of the uh, uh, of a, a Silver Star, what later I understand was upgraded to was, uh, was Sergeant Hester, who uh, female sergeant who just taken out bunker after bunker. But the entire platoon had to turn and move towards the bad guys. That's what the discipline's about. You know, I, I tell my uh, I tell my military audiences, you know, we, we teach these guys to kill. We give them the tools and the skill to kill. And yet the truth is they come home and they're less likely to commit a violent act than a non-veteran the same age. Why? And the safeguard is discipline. It, it's, it's good to, to look at my, my rangers when the Gulf War began or when the, when the war in Iraq and Afghanistan began. The rangers were high and tight. They're all stamped out of the same cookie cutter, you know, shaved on the sides, a little bit on top. That was it. And then we began to go to Afghanistan, work with tier one guys, and they said, grow your hair out, grow your beard out, Roger out. Then they come and said, cut it off, Roger out, grow it out, Roger out, cut it off, Roger out. We don't care what your hair looks like. What matters is obedience to authority. And whatever the hell the standard is, we enforce it. And the NCO, the sergeant, is the guardian of the safeguard. So we've got this dynamic in which we're empowering people to be killers. We're giving them the training and the tools. Are we giving them the safeguard of discipline that comes with that? And so these are very, very complex topics. When we, like, like you, my time was the race relations and the EEO, and we did a pretty good job of it, you know, but it may have gone too far now, but you're right. So World War in, in the Korean War, the army was broken. And it took a couple of years to get their feet back on the ground and turn around and go. And then Vietnam and, and partway through the Vietnam War, we were broken again. We couldn't get rid of the drug users. We couldn't get rid of the, of the dopers. And, and I was the residue of that in 1974 when I came in. My war was the Cold War. Uh, Grenada was a day. Panama was a day. Gulf One was four days. If you made them all, and I didn't, it wouldn't last a week. These kids today, I got a son with nine combat tours. He sees more combat in, in a week than I would have seen in my whole career. Our war was a cold war. But so, these kids are magnificent. They've done a great job out there. So here's my question to you then. With with all of this, yeah, I, I guess a simple question would be, where do you think we went wrong to yeah. go too far? Yeah. Uh, and then how do we swing it back? Because I believe, I wholeheartedly believe, 
You know, you go to a lot of training to treat people. If you don't know how to treat a person equally, no matter what, there's a problem to start with. I think I've always said that. Um, Of course, there's some people that you have to teach to do that, but that's a problem to start with. So where did we go wrong by teaching people common decency? Because that's all it is, is common decency, common courtesy, trying to do the right thing. Where did we go over the line? Well, you know, if it, it, you say we got to treat everybody equally, but if they're criminal, then do we still treat them equal? If they're doing drugs in the barracks, if they're beating up people who won't do drugs, do we respect them and respect their what they're doing? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's easy. I, I, oh, we respect all individuals. We respect every belief. But when it comes to doing drugs and stealing stuff, and beating up people that won't do what you, you know, that won't do drugs. Maybe it's time to draw the line right there. So it's so easy to see this grand statement that, oh, we've got to have respect for it. You've been a cop. You know that there's people out there that have broken the law, and you now have to treat them differently. There is no pretty way to apprehend a non-compliant suspect. There's, there's no way it looks good on video. There's no I, way somebody's I trying agree to fight 100%. you. hundred percent. So yeah. I guess when I say that we treat everyone equally, you, what I mean by that is you have to measure up and read the room for every situation. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and I think that maybe we've gone now where it's too much thinking. People are starting to second guess themselves and that can lead to trouble. And that's what I mean by equal you have to treat everyone equally. And what I mean by that is everyone that you're serving, everyone that you're doing this community service for is a person. Yes. When you get into the arrest situation, when you get into a law enforcement situation, yes, things change very much so. And I agree with that. The problem that I have with today's times is that I think we might have gone too far to where guys are second guessing themselves uh, and worried about what's going to happen to them for everything they do. I heard you talk something about litigation where you say um, it doesn't matter if you get sued. You were talking to law enforcement. It's if you get sued successfully, that's the problem where it comes in. You should always be mindful of your situation and worry about that later on. Is that, Am I correct in that? Yeah, exactly right. You know, uh, I, I tell people now, I say, you know, it's appropriate to be concerned about being sued, but really be concerned about being successfully sued. Be concerned about doing the wrong thing. Be concerned about lives being lost that didn't have to be lost. And, and the answer is training. You know, if, if for whatever reason, I, I've been doing it so long and so much. I, I believe I'm the only law enforcement trainer ever been post-certified all 50 states, you know, my book on killing on combat. Uh, you know, we, we put out the book uh, on spiritual combat, Christian Book Award finalist. Pretty cool. And we got a book coming out in March <laughs> on hunting. You really don't understand killing. I know one of your sponsors a while back was, uh, was uh, a tier one outdoors. Uh, that's pretty cool. There's some guys that might be interested in this. You know, hey, I know what Grossman had to say about on killing on combat, but you know, you can't understand who we are if you don't understand hunting. We say in the book, if, if the existence of our species was 24 hours, right up until the last six minutes, 
all we did was hunt. We were hunter-gatherers. It's what we were designed for, what we do. And, 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 and now, all of a sudden, we, we, you can understand combat without understanding hunting, auditory exclusion. You don't hear the shot. Where's that come from? Well, if, if the lions roar, stunned you, then they win and you die. And this mechanism that allows us, every predator has some kind of a, a sound weapon that they use. The, 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 the barking wolf, you know, the, the charging lion, the roaring tiger. And, and we've got this ability to tune it out. And so when we enter into the gunpowder weapon, gunpowder, boom, we're, we're tuning out the sounds. And cops don't hear the shots in combat or the shots are muted. Soldiers don't hear the shots in combat. How in the hell could we have had 500 years of gunpowder combat? and not let people know, hey, the shots are probably get quiet in combat. Don't worry about it. So that's just the tip of the iceberg of the things we need to know. So the answer is not to be terrified of being sued. The answer is to be as good as you can possibly be, to seek as much training as possible. Now, you can quit the job and avoid that risk, or you can get as well-trained and well-skilled as possible. How do you stack the deck in your favor? How do you load the dice in your favor? Training, training, training. Be confident of your skills. Embrace the resources that are given to you. Uh, and so, so the whole point of that about being successfully sued is about doing something wrong and, and, and outside, of, outside of policy, outside of common sense, outside of the law that is gonna put you in trouble. And it really comes back to, how do I do the right thing where the world comes unglued and I'm fighting for my life? Training, training, training. You do not rise to the challenge. You sink to the level of your training. And, and that's the whole point of that, that uh, lawsuit dynamic is, is lives are, you know, a lost lawsuit means you violated policy. You broke the law. You hurt somebody who didn't have to be hurt. And the weight of law is now not on your side, but on the side of whoever it is that you, you did this to. And how do you how do you use that incredible authority as law enforcement and not abuse it? And that comes back to training. The moment of truth and worlds come unglued and lives are on the line, you don't rise to the challenge. You sink to the level of your training. All right. So let's talk about something that is a very interesting dynamic to me about you. Um, we talked about this before the show where I said that we're going to talk about have you been in combat? Have you killed somebody? Yeah. Now, the interesting dynamic to me is, is of course, uh, you have not been in combat, correct? That's correct. You have not killed a man, correct? Right. Yep. Okay. So what's so interesting about your situation to me is you get some people that say, well, how would he know what he's talking about? How can he become an expert on this when he's never done this? Yeah. And then this is where it gets interesting. On the other side, I've seen people attack you and say, you're teaching people the wrong things. You can't teach them these kind of ideas. You can't teach them because you're turning them into killers. You're turning them into something that they are inherently not. So I want to talk about both of those because it's yeah. such an interesting dynamic in, in your life to me and how you balance that so well. Yeah. You know, I was, uh, I was uh, I'm doing a, a presentation with a group of presenters over a period of time. And one of the guys was a, a world champion pistol shooter, and he trains Delta Force. 
And one of the Delta Force operators said, told him, he said, I don't try to do headshots anymore. You know, I just, you can't do headshots in combat. They're, they're always moving and, 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 and they're going to move their head and you can't shoot them in the head. And so he, he told everybody, you won't do a headshot in combat. Uh, <laughs> time out. Do some freaking science. Tell other guys in the unit, say the same thing. I, 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 is he talking rifle or pistol? What range is he talking about? What, what I do is the science. I have interviewed more people who have been in combat than anybody in human history by far. I, in 1995, my book on killing came out and I did scads of research for it. And the Vietnam veterans were a critical part of my research. And the Vietnam veterans, they said, you know, if you had been there, if you had participated in it, you would not have the ability to stand back and write this book in a dispassionate manner. This book's being used by, uh, uh, last I heard, peace studies programs in Berkeley, and it's still on the Marine Corps Commandant's required reading list. Now, how do you make the Marine Corps and peace studies programs in Berkeley happy the same book? You just tell the truth. Do some science. Interview as many people as humanly possible. Keep up the process. Constantly evolve what you're doing uh, and, 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 and base it on the widest possible spectrum of information humanly possible. I've been out on the road for over 25 years now, well over 200 days a year, with the exception of the pandemic. And, and every day, somebody who's killed in combat comes up and talks to me. Every day, somebody who's been in deadly force incident comes up and talks to me. And every one of them has something terribly, terribly important to contribute to our understanding. What's most valuable are the ones who are different. You know, you don't hear the shots in combat. Uh, the body focuses intensely on the sense you need most of survival. But a cop told me, he said, you know what, I, I, I was in a gunfight, the shots were muted, I got shot, and I fell off, it was at night, and I fell off the front steps into a, a dark area. It was in pitch darkness, I'd been shot, and all of a sudden, the sounds were overwhelming. Why did that happen? <laughs> now think about it. The body's going to focus intensely on the sense it needs most for survival. When you're shooting, the eyes are dialed in, the ears dial out. You're helpless. And, and, and you're, you're lying there, you know, wounded. There is no visual stimulus coming in. The ears turn on, the eyes turn off, and the sound is overwhelming. Now, where you usually see that change is being caught in an ambush. Boom, 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 shots overwhelming. Start shooting back. The shots get muted. We've seen that over and over again. It's these exceptions where the shots were quiet that teaches us what's going on. And, and when you start shooting back, the shots get muted. And, and it's just the tip of the iceberg of the kind of things we need to know. And, and you're never going to get that by talking to one person or reading one book. Uh, my, my stuff has been cited. I, I saw a, a citation for a professor, very, very distinguished professor, who's now retiring, and his scholarly stuff has been cited over a thousand times in scholarly works. How do you find that? Go to google.scholar.google.com and look something up and see how many times been cited. My book on killing has been cited over 3,500 times in scholarly works altogether. My stuff has been cited almost 5,000 times. Academics work for a lifetime and only get a tiny fraction of those kind of impact in which your research is being cited and contributes to the body of work. 
And so it's all about asking those questions that other people don't want to ask. And what's it like to kill in combat? You know, in 1974, 82nd Airborne Division, Private Grossman, Sergeant Grossman in a few years, we had Vietnam vets all around us. We wanted to know what combat was going to be like. And they wouldn't say. It was like this taboo topic. So Captain Grossman, en route to teach at West Point, as my graduate thesis, I interviewed people about the experience of killing, and now they would tell me. You know, if somebody walked up and asked, hey, how's the sex life going? How are you and the wife doing? How many times a week get it on? What's your favorite? <laughs> Who the hell are you to be? Get out of me. Get out of my face. But if Masters and Johnson came to you as part of the scholarly research, you might tell them. You might even tell them the truth. So here I am for maybe the first time in human history, somebody actually asking these questions. What's it like to kill? How did you respond? drawing from every written resource I can find and every, every interview that I can find, pull it all together, do some science. Don't have one Delta Force guy die, oh, you can't make headshots in combat, and then tell everybody, because I'll give you case after case after case, where cops made, made headshots and stopped the perp instantly. Uh, a gunfight, multiple body shots, you just, you just exchange the lead until one of you gives up, and in the end, you're both gonna die. You get that headshot, boom, it ends. And, and get case after case like that. Do some science. Interview as many people as you can. Uh, pull that, you know, the book on hunting is coming out now. It, it, it's all about asking the question and getting as much data as humanly possible. I got a, I got a new version of On Combat that'll be out hopefully in, it'll be a couple of years. Uh, but it will, it will be kind of the capstone of all my work, pulling on hunting and on killing under a single capstone with the latest research you know, one of the things that happens is memory distortions. And just six months ago, I got the greatest example of memory distortions, flat out hallucinations. About one out of five cops in a deadly force incident remember something that did not happen. And I got a great example, young black officer in Indiana, in Indiana uh, he said, you're right, a magnificent young, young cop. A great kid. He said, you're right. Things have gone crazy. He said, I've been in three deadly force incidents in just the last two years. But let me tell you about memory distortions. He said, the last one, a guy's arms reach away and he pulls out a knife. Now, starting, you know, starting your fight, bad guy has a knife, arms reach away. It, this is not good. What happened to that 20-foot rule, you know, and all that stuff? But, uh, uh, he, he, he basically told himself, I'm going to get cut. I'm going to keep fighting. So he drew and fired, and he hit the spinal cord and dropped like a bag of rocks. It almost never happened. Hollywood, you know, shoot them once and they fall down. Uh, you know, the lead, when I was looking at what, what they call it, 1883 or whatever it was, and they're in the saloon shooting these people. They shoot them all once, and they all fly away. What a stupid, goofy misrepresentation that could ever be. But this time, that's what happened. Hit him in the spinal cord, dropped like a bag of rocks, and never touched. But he said, I saw blood on my hands. I kept looking at my hands for blood. Uh, a guy from the peer support team comes and joins him, a friend of his, had gone to the hospital. He's not hurt, but always go to the hospital, get fully checked up. And, and, and he's in the back seat of a, of, of a, of a vehicle, the, this guy beside him, and he said, dude, for the last time, there's no blood on your hands. Quit asking me. That's how intense the memory distortion could be. Can you see how he would have said, 
I'm going to get cut. I'm going to keep fighting. He envisions blood on his hands. He envisions himself still fighting. And what he envisions possibility becomes reality. So these are the kind of things that we need to understand. What, what we've got, it's a law in Texas, common sense everywhere else. A cop should have the right to see every video before they make their formal written statement. Now, what's our goal? I start every class with the Pledge of Allegiance. Last three words of the Pledge of Allegiance, justice for all. Every American has sworn an oath that justice for all, that's our goal. And if we have memory distortions, if we have memory gaps, and the video says something different, and you write that memory distortion, you write that memory gap, it will kick your tail in court. The entire world is going to see that video and play Monday morning quarterback before you write that formal written report with memory gaps and memory distortions. You have every right to see every video. Otherwise, there'll be memory gaps and memory distortions. It'll kick your tail in court. And so this, this ongoing dynamic of applying uh, just as much research and data and scholarship as possible. There are people out there in a life and death situation where a record number of cops murdered and in spite of all of our training with a, a record explosion of violence and on top of all that, nobody wants to do the job. Recruiting is down, retention is down. These are desperate bad times. But I was there in 1974 in the army and there was great national leadership. We pivoted on a dime and, and, and have faith in our way of life, have faith in our nation. And in the end, it's, it's really a scholarly battle. And my book uh, on spiritual combat is the other part of that whole equation, because in the end, we're in a battle against forces of evil. You need to have a force of good on your side. And that's kind of the, the culmination on that. All right. So here, here's the questions that come to mind on that. You, you talk about some statistics yeah. uh, in your writings, in your speeches that yeah. you give. You talk about World War II, 15 to 25% of the time the soldiers, if they didn't have someone standing directly yeah. over them, fired yeah. at uh, the enemy. Check. Uh, by Vietnam, it moved to 90, 95%. Right. Now, I want to jump forward to the GWAT. Yes. you got guys that were in combat. Some of them, their entire career, from the yeah. day they went in, got through basic and everything, they were in combat until they retired or in a combat rotation until they my, retired. My son, nine combat tours. There you go. Yep. So my question to that is, when we talk about all this, what is the difference now? Because it went up to Vietnam, but now we're talking 20 years. And and you even, I want to point out one more statistic before. Yeah. Uh, you say 60 days in combat, 60 days and nights in combat, 98% of all soldiers become psychological casualties. Yeah. Okay. 60 days and nights. We're talking a 20-year global war on terror. All right. I'll let you take over from there. Now, that, that data was drawn from uh, Normandy Beach in World War II. A team of psychiatrists landed in the second wave of Normandy Beach, and they Swank and Marchand as the authors of the study that was later published. And they're there in combat studying our troops on Normandy Beach. And there's almost always a rear line you can rotate people through. There's almost always a, a safe place you can go get a good night's sleep. But on Normandy Beach, for a very short window of time, there were no rear lines. There was no way to get out of it. And, and, and there was no safe place to go crash for a, for a night. Uh, and, and what they found out was 
of those who were left after 60 days of inescapable day and night combat, 98% had become psychiatric casualties. Now, the other 2% are really interesting, but that is an incredibly rare phenomenon. You know, when we look at my son with nine combat tours, when we look at the GWAD with 20 years of war, look at our cops. Our cops are in the combat zone every day, but they come home. They get to turn it off. Let me, let me interrupt you there. Yeah, but great, do they get to turn it off? See, that's a really good difference because the military can come rotate out and turn it all off. The cop can never completely turn it off. My dad was a cop. He, he had an unhappy customer who drew a gun on him and my mom in the supermarket. You know, every cop is an unhappy customer out there somewhere. And dad always had his back to the wall, always carried a gun and, and was able to, you know, to de-escalate the situation. But if he'd been caught without a gun, he and mom would have died that day. So a cop can never truly turn it off. The guys in the military get to come home and turn it off. Have respect for what the cops face because they do take the uniform off. They do, you know, leave the beat, but still a part of it's always there with them. But so we look at, you know, we look at, all right, 20 years of war. Are they all destroyed? No. They, they have right, come to levels of performance never seen before. You know, in on spiritual combat, I talk about elite veterans throughout history. You know, at the end of World War II, if you started at the beginning with the Brits, it ran five years. And at the end of five years, some of those people were amazing. Napoleon's old guard took Napoleon in every battle, took his best people, pulled them out, and put them in a separate unit. And it became the guard and ultimately the old guard. But at the end, they were a total of 11 years of war. After 20 years of war, what kind of warriors are rising to the top? And I tell you, they are flat magnificent. Again, my whole career, if you'd have made them all, and I didn't, it wouldn't add it to six days. These guys see that much in a week. And, and they are not broken. A minority, and I love that you always talk about post-traumatic stress. You don't throw that D in there every time. Everybody has some degree of post-traumatic stress. It becomes post-traumatic growth. Come out the other end stronger. If it's post-traumatic stress disorder, and you know what the state of California is mandated, we call it post-traumatic stress injury. And they're right on that one. You recover from an injury and you'll be stronger. Hemingway said life breaks everyone, and usually we're stronger in the broken spots. We're really, really good at treating PTSD. Comes out the other end as post-traumatic growth. And we got this myth that they all have PTSD and they, they're all suicidal and they're all homicidal. And, and you, you, you've heard 22 veterans a day take their life. And, and that's true. But veteran and combat veteran are two different things. If you, you served for two years in the, in the 50s, the 60s, early 70s, you were a veteran. Elvis Presley was drafted. Elvis was a veteran. He served two years and got out. If Elvis was still alive and he killed himself, he'd have been one of the 22 veterans a day. So you see, they throw this data out here, 22 veterans a day take their life, and you automatically think veterans of combat in this war. And it's not. The vast majority, and every suicide's a tragedy, I have a nephew who's a veteran who took his life. Every suicide's a tragedy. But the idea that they're all suicidal, of those 22 veterans a day, all but one or two 
are, are, are not from this war. The vast majority are 70, 80, 90-year-old men. And, and suicide among the elderly, totally different topic, and every suicide's a tragedy. But they throw out that 22-a-day number, and they want you to think it's all from the current war. So it's this myth that they're all broken and they all have post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm so glad you don't throw that D in there lightly. And they're all suicidal. When the truth is they're a new greatest generation. The greatest generation came home for World War II. Yeah, 98% of those who were still there at, at on Normandy Beach had be, temporarily become, but they weren't kick you out of the Army Section 8. Most of them give them four, you know, give them three hots and a cot, and they'll get back in gear. Give them a good night's sleep, give them three hot meals, take them out of the danger zone, rotate them back in. Most of that, that 98% would be just fine. Uh, now, there is a percentage who become psychiatric casualties in World War II. Totally different topic. Uh, but the vast, vast majority came home, and they were the greatest generation. And they knew greatest generation rising up. After 20 years of the GWAT, you know, we're actually 21, 22. We're still in Iraq. It's not over yet. The fall of Afghanistan, it's one of the greatest tragedies since the fall of Vietnam and that nobody's been held accountable for that's a tragedy. Uh, but but these kids are magnificent. They're all kids for, for people like me and, and to a certain degree like you. Uh, I'm 66 now. I'm going to stay in the fight for another 20 years. The only way you win is by staying in the fight. But uh, they are magnificent, and to be of service to them and to have your work and your research to be required reading for them is just possibly the highest honor anybody could ever have in life. So here's my question to that then. Yeah. The most magnificent generation, I agree that these guys are absolutely amazing. Where I kind of differ in my opinion is I think that it's changing slowly, and, and I'm going to bring law enforcement into this too. Yeah. But I think that post-traumatic stress, it hasn't been taken seriously for a long time. And I think that's where you get the trouble in the conversation because it wasn't taken serious for so long. And And now we're trying to to clean it up. The military is doing it. But a lot is still not out there. Those alternative therapies are still hard to bring in. It's still fringe science. It's still this and that. But we found that it works. So – when when we talk about post-traumatic stress, I just wonder where you think that we kind of fell off track with it and yeah. then how we, to you, are bringing it back on board. Right. Because let's, let's, let's agree that the post-traumatic stress and stuff was not around when you were Cold War. It just wasn't talked about. Yeah. But first off, you know, to break down my own argument, the greatest generation, but they represent less than 1% of our population. Absolutely. So it may be magnificent, but they're darn few. Even when you throw in law enforcement, the numbers are still a tiny percentage. So they have grown and they're strong, and, but, but that, you know, the snowflakes out there are a different story. Uh, and, and that's, you know, they're, they're a tiny part. Of, we really didn't know about PTSD until Vietnam. I, I, I write in my book on killing about how... Uh, you know, you know, I make the example of making the link between sex and and having a baby. You know, you have sex all the time. You don't have babies, you know, and, and there's this nine month gap between cause and effect. And and, and hypothetically, we talk about, you know, a, a bunch of blonde Vikings sweep through and there's rape and pillage. 
And nine months later, there's this, there's this batch of blonde babies, and you make the connection. That's kind of what happened in Vietnam. Uh, they, were, they were in a tragic environment. They arrived as individuals. They left as individuals. One of the most stupid things your armed forces has ever done. They're, they're, they're the FNG. They're the new guy. They're, they're, they're going to get you killed. They don't know what they're doing. And then at the end of the year, you're the wise old man. You're the one everybody depends on, and you leave them. And then they come home, and they're spit on and called baby killer and condemned and vilified in the media. And, and, and not everybody, not every Vietnam veteran has PTSD by any stretch. But for the first time, we made the connection. The factors in PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, are the magnitude of trauma at the time, previous unresolved trauma in your life, and the support structure afterwards. And we took that support structure and turned it into almost a condemnation. They didn't have their parade. They didn't have their welcome home. And, and, and again, the vast majority of Vietnam vets will tell you they're not broken. They're stronger. But something real bad happened. And, and years later, we started having this response. And we coined the concept of post-traumatic stress disorder. Post, after the stress, months later, years later. And we began to put the pieces together. And again, my book on killing and non-combat, a required reading. I've done psychiatric grand rounds in uh, hospitals. I've done department of defense-wide psychiatric grand rounds. Uh, caught on camera, pumped out over 100 military hospitals worldwide about, about post-traumatic stress disorder, what's happened to the mind and body, and the path to healing. And, and you're right, you know, like, like uh, EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprogramming. Uh, it is still being called out there, or or SISM, critical incident stress management, being attacked. Uh, you know, the the infighting within the the mental health community is vicious, uh, and and everybody that doesn't teach the way they do is a threat. And so uh, the dynamic of being able to come to healing through other mechanisms is now entering, and and we're getting smarter, we're getting wiser, we're we're embracing a wide perspective. The Veterans Administration made an excellent move a couple of years back when they said, you don't have to use a VA provider. You can find your own mental health provider. And, 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 and that opened the door to a variety of different resources that were, that were useful to different individuals. And uh, I think we've made enormous progress in that realm. I, um, I recently was a speaker at an Air Force base in Florida on their, their mental health week. And I was there Capstone speaker, it was at the base theater, filled up with, with Air Force personnel, caught on camera, pumped out across the base. And before I did my presentation, you know, I talked about no pity party, no macho man. Don't cop a pity party. Don't think you're going to be destroyed. But if there is a problem, deal with it. And have faith that the help can help. And find that middle path between assuming you're broken and, 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 and thinking that you don't need help. Find that middle path. How can you help others? You can't help yourself. Well, they, 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 the colonel, of the head of the doc, the psychiatrist that was head of the mental health community, before I spoke, he said, this is the capstone presentation. Almost everybody's going to hear this. And I want you to understand something terribly important. We're really, really good at treating PTSD. But you got to let us know. you got to let us know. And, and the idea that post-traumatic stress disorder is a life sentence is one of the most horrible myths out there. 
Oh, I've got PTSD, like having cancer. No, it's like having a broken bone and post-traumatic stress injury. And we can treat it and come out the other hand stronger, post-traumatic growth. So we've come a long ways, you know, and, and there's another dynamic. In World War I, they called it shell shock, concussions, what today we call TBI, traumatic brain injury. And then in World War II, they said, no, it's combat fatigue. It's all psychological. Now we know it's both. And TBI and PTSD, the symptoms are very similar. They've got very similar symptoms, but they've got completely different etiologies and completely different treatments. And so we're able to treat the TBI and the PTSD. And that by itself is a huge leap forward in, in, in mental health treatment. In, in 20 years of war, our troops are absolutely magnificent. Their skills, the techniques, the training, the tactics and tools that they use. In the same way, the medical community, you know, we've all seen MASH. We all got this model in our mind of the medical skills that are crafted in combat. Well, believe me, the medical community in this war have gone leaps and bounds beyond where they were 20 years ago. It's saving murder victims across America and hold down the murder rate. But the mental health community has also come leaps and bounds. If one of your listeners out there thinks they're trapped in a lifetime of mental illness, uh, you're not. Medical science moves on. You know, no amount of money is worth a lifetime of mental illness. Get help and, and strive to recover your life. And, you know, one of the big wild cards in the whole equation is sleep deprivation. It's, it's my, my key dynamic that I try to give to every audience, military, law enforcement, anybody. Sleep deprivation is a key factor in suicide. Uh, I, I've lost two nephews and a brother to suicide. One of my nephews, uh, none of them, none of them had a note. It was all, you know, we, why, why, why? Well, we look back in retrospect, one of my nephews, uh, the new video game came out. He locked himself in his room with a pile of sodas and, and snacks and played the video game 24 hours a day. And on the, on the fourth day, he killed himself. Sleep deprivation, suicide, it's a powerful link that people don't know. Uh, why did he do it? Why did she do it? Well, was she sleep deprived? Oh, she was binge watching shows night after night and so on. It's a key factor in traffic deaths. Traffic deaths have exploded worldwide. Decade after decade, we brought traffic deaths down. Airbags, seatbelts, medical technology. Now in every nation across the planet, traffic deaths are up. What is the new factor? A global epidemic of sleep deprivation. The opiate epidemic. Why are opiates a drug of choice? Why opiates? Prescription opiates have always been there. Why are they suddenly the drug of choice? Sleep deprivation creates chronic pain. You don't sleep, the tendons of muscle never fully relax. Doc, I heard all the time, give me a pill to fix you, and a pill, you need more sleep. Do an online search between sleep deprivation and pain, sleep deprivation, suicide, sleep deprivation, traffic death, boom. Do a search for sleep deprivation and Alzheimer's. And look at the research linking those two. So here's kind of the, the key dynamic. My dad started smoking in 1940 when he was five years old. He plunked a nickel on the counter, couldn't even look over the counter, the local general store, bought a pack of bull Durham tobacco and rolling paper, started smoking five years old. Hey, candy rots your teeth, right? Cigarettes are good for you. Camel Ed said, as your doctor, I recommend camels. And then, and Viceroy said, more dentists smoke Viceroy's. Dentists say Viceroy's, doctors say camels. <laughs> they, they didn't care they were killing my dad. They just wanted to sell their product. 
Well, the head of Netflix a while back said that their number one competitor is not other online providers. The number one competitor is sleep. The corporate policy of Netflix is to steal your sleep. It's a key factor in obesity. Want to lose weight? Get more sleep. It's a key factor in heart disease. So there's a global epidemic of heart disease, obesity, suicide, traffic deaths, and opiate overdoses. What is the new factor? I got a book coming out probably in about two years called On Sleep. The tragic impact of a global epidemic of sleep deprivation. But they, they're not, the, that video game is never going to say you've been playing this game for 48 hours trying to get some sleep. Facebook will never say you've been online for over 36 hours trying to get some sleep. And, and, and Netflix will never say you've been binge watching shows for 36 hours, time to turn it off. They will never do that. They just want to sell their product. And then you add to that the global epidemic of caffeine abuse and the mega doses of caffeine were pumped in our body, what they're doing to sleep. Uh, it, there's some bad stuff coming down the road there, but the one place where we can get some help right up, right up front is sleep management. And if I give you just one nugget of information your listeners could have, there's so much on sleep hygiene that we should have been taught in elementary school. Sleep in a totally dark room. Our bodies are designed to sleep in darkness. Throughout human history, it got dark. And there's only the glowing embers of a fire. And, 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 and there was nothing to do. We had a little sex, a little talking, went to sleep. The body don't know how to make us go to sleep. Your body knows how to get enough air and food and water. Your body doesn't know how to make you get enough sleep. It happened naturally. And, and, and then we had television and electric lighting and video games. And our bodies don't know how to make us get enough sleep. I'm a huge science geek. My favorite website, sciencedaily.com. Check it every day, almost every category. Major study in the sleep lab. Totally dark room. Bathroom light is on. And the door is shut. The light coming under the crack of the bathroom door is enough light to stop your body from producing the melatonin that you need. Melatonin is a neurotransmitter that allows us to sleep, and it can't produce it except in the dark. And so go to Amazon.com, look up sleep masks. And there's a sleep mask on Amazon that has over 60,000 reviews. That's my favorite. My wife has one that she loves. It got a little sandbag that gives pressure. My grandson went off to college. He's heard my presentation, helped me many times. I gave him several different sleep masks. He found the one he likes the most. It's a big piece of fabric that wraps around your face and Velcro's in the back. I talked to him on the phone. How's school going? Are you getting enough sleep? Yes, sir. Are you in your sleep mask? Yes, sir. You may not get one more minute of sleep. You'll get quality sleep. You're doing a totally dark room and combine it with that sleep mask and you will begin to rock your world. So many people have sleep apnea and, and, and that can be treated. I, I interviewed a guy just today who said he had sleep apnea. He put that mask on and it absolutely changed his world to get a good night's sleep after decades of bad sleep. So there's so much more in that area to cover, but we don't even connect the dots on what's going wrong across our civilization with this global epidemic of sleep deprivation. Our veterans who've been told they're broken for life, when the truth is you can recover and be stronger, post-traumatic growth. Let me play devil's advocate with you for a minute. Shoot. The world moves at a faster pace today. You would agree yeah. with that. Uh, it's pretty much nonstop no matter they used to say places like new york city the city that never sleeps it's pretty much everywhere now i'm going to take you as an example yeah. you get home 
twice a week maybe. You're on the road 200 days a year. You're sleeping in hotels, wherever it may be. Different bed every night. You can't be getting the best sleep in the world. With constant... Well, and I want to ask about that, though. With constant interviews, with constant being where you have to be on top of your game every day, but you're going to a different location every night, how are you making it happen then? Because... I think that it's it's that, almost an impossible feat to many people. Yeah. But number one, I really try to practice what I preach. And at 66 years old, in the peak performance, uh, and, and I want to do it for another 20 years, I'm really invested in, in staying in the fight as long as I can. And the single thing that I can do is manage my sleep. And, and look, you know, you've been in the military. I, I've, 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 I've slept in the jungle with a poncho wrapped around me and the rain coming down. I've slept in the Arctic. You know, I, I've used my, my you know, the only thing that gas mask ever did for me in, in 24 years of service, it's a pretty good pillow. You know, I've used my gas mask for a pillow wrapped up in a poncho liner uh, around the world. I don't want to hear whining about bad hotel room beds. I'll tell you about bad beds. I don't want to hear any whining about, you know, the, the, the air conditioning in your hotel room. You know, the kids out there living in the desert right now, they'll tell you about air conditioning. I, I've got it good. People, people cop a pity party. Uh, yeah, I've got to be in a different bed every night. That's goofy. That's a pity party. Uh, the, the truth is that you've, you've got controlled climate. You've got a warm, soft place to sleep. You've got a full stomach. Uh, and, and, and you kind of look at, at you know, at a, a ranger school, days without food, days without sleep. You know, for the rest of my life, I always had food in my pocket somewhere, and I always tried to make sure I got enough sleep. So, uh, you know, the lesson to be learned from ranger school is not that I don't need food, I don't need sleep. The lesson is what a useless zombie I am if you don't get food, if I don't get sleep. You know, you, know, you, you say on your piece that everybody has a story. You know, I got a, I got a ranger school story that might be fun to, okay. to share audience you know uh, uh, I, uh, I I got a law enforcement trainer and he says be that guy be the one that's pushing the envelope and, and, and doing the best he can and, and I try to use an example you know after the binning phase we, we didn't have the desert phase when I went to ranger school at uh, eight class 8-79 uh, but uh we had an extended Fort Benning phase. And we came back from our first, you know, three or four weeks, sleep deprivation and food deprivation. And we, we come back and, uh, and we've got to turn in all of our equipment and we're going to get a very brief break and then we're going to go to the mountains. And we only had one night at home and, and then straight to the mountains, boom. And uh, we were all sleep deprived and we're all exhausted and wiped out. Got this big, tall Marine who, uh, who's in the outhouse He's got his map in the, you know, that side pocket in your, in your uniform, you know, in your, different uniforms, different times. They all have that side pocket. He's got a map in that side pocket and it falls into the latrine. It's just sitting there in a pile of shit. You know? And he comes staggering back and he says, I, I dropped my map in the latrine. He says, I, I need somebody to hold my legs. Because <laughs> if, if you don't turn in your map, you fail. You fail ranger school. All this sacrifice, all the suffering is for nothing because you can't turn in your map. And, uh, and everybody's just a bunch of zombies. You know, uh, and I, I had just enough energy 
And I said, you bunch of Bravo Foxtrot, you, know, you bunch of dirtbags. He's not asking you to go in with him. He's just asking you to hold your legs. And my ranger buddy and my OCS buddy, infantry buddy, Jim Boyle, big tall guy, Jim Boyle. I said, Jimbo, let's, let's go dump this, this Marine in the ship. <laughs> There's this hatch in the back of this outhouse. And we lift up the hatch, we grab him by his legs, and he goes down in there. He's gagging and puking, and we pull this map off. We, we slap it off on some trees. We all pour our canteens on it, try to clean it off. And he goes and turns it in. And then we do our peer evaluations. You'd be peered out of ranger school. Very says you're a dirt bag. Boom, you're done. And I thought, I'm going to get peered out. I just told these guys, what a bunch of dirt bags they were. <laughs> I'm going to get peered out. You know what? I don't care. And so uh, Jim Boyle and I were, were, were called out to the to tactical officer, the guy that stays with you through all the rotations. And one, up, one by one, he brings us in. He said, Ranger Grossman, uh, I, I got some bad news for you. Oh, that's it. I've been peered out, right? He says, uh, I'm going to have to separate you and Ranger Boyle and put you in different platoons on the next cycle. Well, well first, I'm just glad I wasn't out. You know? I, I said, well, 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 why, sir? He said, everybody in the platoon peered you and Boyle, number one, number two. And I can't have such strong feeders. And I missed the opportunity of a lifetime. It would have been legendary Ranger School tale. But I just said, sir, you don't understand. It's just because we dipped the Marine in the shit. <laughs> we'll be, I, I promise you, we'll be a bunch of drones on the next cycle. It's just, <laughs> it's just this one situation. <laughs> and, and, and my point is this. When things go bad, when things go into hell, when you're sleep deprived and you're, you're food deprived, when people are dying around you, they're going to turn to the one who's pushing the envelope. They're going to turn to the one who stands up and leaves. Be that person, be that cop, be that soldier, be the one, the energy and the drive and the guts to lead the way when you're tired and wiped out and exhausted because they will turn to you. They will honor you if, if you push that envelope and be that person. And, and, and so my message to so many people is just be that guy. You know, in the law enforcement community, we all got that Tackerberry, right? Oh, here's a Tackerberry, right from the police academy thing, you know, Tackerberry with all of it, you know, the tactical stuff. And he's a, you know, object of ridicule, although better than some of the other stereotypes there. We got this model in our mind. Oh, you're going to be a Tackerberry, right? No, no, no. We need those people. We need that guy on the TAC team. We need those guys and gals out there doing magnificent work. Be that person. Push that envelope. Uh, uh, seek those, those spots, you know, whether you're a cop or or you're doing fire, I teach fire service across America with your EMS. You know, my, my book on combat was a bestseller across the medical community throughout the pandemic. I was on a whole bunch of mil, uh, medical podcasts. And they said, well, you know, if it works in combat, it works during a pandemic. And they were, it was a bestseller during the pandemic. I train all these groups. And I tell them all the same. Be that person. Be the one with the drive and the energy and the courage to stand up and lead. And, and, and they will honor that. And, and so that's kind of the, the message. You know, like I tell them, you know, it, 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 you don't rise to the challenge. You sink to the level of your training. Seek that training. Law enforcement may be the only profession that I know of who will go to training with their own money and their own time. And when I teach my classes, very often there's the majority of them are there with their own money and their own time. They go to shooting schools. They go to tactical schools. Teachers, teachers 
we're, we're, we're trying to get an advanced degree, but they're they're getting funded and supported and given time to do it. And you know, electricians and plumbers get you know get training, but they're being paid to do it. What kind of profession is this? What manner you know? And and the Bible says, greater love is known than this. They give their life for their friends. Well, what about people who give their life for strangers? What manner of love is this? That men and women walk out that door and lay their life down for people they never even met. And and, and so, uh, you know, I, I, one of my catchphrases, you can do just about any word salad, put it in Google, and somebody said it. And no one's ever said this before. Sometimes the greatest love is not to sacrifice your life, but to lead a life of sacrifice. To place the welfare of others ahead of your own. To walk out the door every day of your life. To do a dirty, dangerous, thankless job every day of your life to the utmost of your ability because you know if nobody did it, our civilization would no longer exist. The opposite of evil is love. Evil is the absence of love, just as darkness is the absence of light. When we eat evil with love, you know what makes a great cop? Empathy. They say, what if it was my family wiped out by that drunk diver? What if it was my spouse? What if it was my child? Empathy is just not the word for love. Nobody became a cop to get rich. Nobody became a cop to be famous. Nobody became a cop because they like to boss people around. They, if you did, you get out real fast. They became a cop because they want to make the world a better place. And the same thing with our military and, and the same thing with our medical and, and, and first responders. And, and they deserve honor. What manner of love is this? That men and women walk out that door and lay their life down for strangers. And so to be service to them across these years, to, to be able to provide resources to them, just, just such an honor. And the way we beat these bastards by staying in the fight, things are bad right now. But if the only thing the universe can control is yourself, and, you know, you're not doing this podcast to be rich and famous. You're not doing this podcast uh, because you're getting paid big bucks for it. So why are you doing it? You want to make a difference. You want to make a contribution. You want to give. And, and I honor you. And I honor the people who listen to you because they're seeking deeper levels of knowledge. When we were kids, there were three networks and and, and, and a couple of national magazines and maybe a couple of, of, of newspapers. And if you didn't get in those, your story never got heard. But today, the podcast revolution has broken through that logjam. And not just people who are providing this for, for basically no money. You ain't getting paid big bucks for doing this. You know, the, the, the police coffee people might give you a little bit of free coffee. They're not much more than that you're getting out of this. So They, they take care of me pretty well. Yeah, so, uh... and, and so you know, we honor those people who are doing it because they want to make the world a better place. And ain't nobody doing this job for the money. Now the answer in the near future will be to pay our cops a hell of a lot more money. Nobody wants to do this job. We're going to start paying them the money they deserve to be paid. But I, I, I'm going to disagree with you there. I think what's yeah. going to happen, follow me down this timeline. I think what's going to happen there is standards are going to go down. Oh, I hope. It's going to happen. It's going yeah. to happen. Standards yeah. are going to go down. Then you're going to get in a new loop of, you're stuck with what you're bringing in. Yeah. The older guys are going to be getting out. The older girls are going to be getting out. You're going to lose that, that time on that wisdom that they have. And you're going to be stuck in this. And then we're going to figure out again, 
in a cycle, just like you said about the military, that you're going to have to pay more. You want smart people. You want people that can do the job, can navigate the rapids, all that kind of stuff. You're going to have to pay them to do it because that's what everyone else does. And then you're going to get back to the more pay. I hope but you're going to have to go through the riptides first. Yeah. Of Let me give you an angle the, on that. You know, I, I, I trained the National Sheriff's Association, many, many chiefs associations, never the National Chiefs Association. They're all they're owned by New York and San Francisco and L.A. But I, I and I tell every cop and I tell every law enforcement leader, don't lower the standards. Now, some of us remember pre 9-11 cops. You, were you a cop pre 9-11? No, I was in the military. OK. Pre-9-11, it lowered the standards so bad. Nobody wanted to do the job. Nobody wanted to be a cop. It was so bad that they were waiving felonies to get people to be a cop. They were waiving felonies. And, and so you may have heard of the Rampart scandal, LAPD, Rampart scandal, terrible criminal behavior in the Ramparts Division, LAPD. Well, the, the executive summary, page one, number one, Rampart scandal, we probably shouldn't have hired a cop with a felony record. And then 9-11 happened. And magnificent men and women were drawn to service, not just in the military, but in law enforcement. And, and, and then, you know, we're back again. I, I try to tell every audience, don't lower the standards. Yeah, the tattoo standards, you know, the beard standards, those things aren't really important. Whatever the standards, we enforce it. But when it comes to moral, moral processes, when it comes to the ability to do the job, please don't lower the standards. Because we've been around that block once before with the Rodney King incident and pre-9-11 and, and the Rampart scandal. You're right. You know, the law enforcement community is, is not some huge monolithic entity. They're this vast dispersed. We have, we have over, over, we have over 12,000 sheriffs. We have another, oh no, over 12,000 chiefs. Like, 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 like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sheriffs. And, and every one of them answers only to the local elected authority. And the sheriff answers only to the voters once every four years. We're completely diffuse. So progress in law enforcement is two steps forward and one step back. Every two agencies doing the right thing, there's somebody doing the wrong thing. And that's progress. And I'm afraid you're right. There's going to be some people doing some really bad stuff before we learn the lesson that uh, the person who decides whether or not to shoot your kid should be the best trained, best paid, best qualified person on the planet. And, and you're right, there'll be some bad stuff coming in, the Rodney King incident, all the other bad stuff, uh, you, know, the, you know, the Rampart scandal. But here we are in law enforcement having come out the other end of that one. And I can tell you about that one personally, but, uh, but yeah, there, there's hope. Never lose faith in our nation. Never lose faith in our way of life. As long as men and women want to walk out that door and lay their life down for strangers, there, there's hope. With you saying all that, do you remember a case study that you did uh, with 9-11 firefighters and the Spartans of Thermopylae? You know, I, I, I talk about that. It's not can so we, much. Can, can yeah. we talk about that a little bit? Because yeah. I, yeah. in talking about all this service, you bring up 9-11 yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, in the history books or even in the quote unquote movies now, the Spartans yeah. of Thermopylae were, right. I mean, they were the 300. They they yeah. stood their ground. They did. Can we talk about that a little bit and and how you use that in your presentations? Yeah. You know, on 9-11, 
400 cops and firefighters died, bearing the shield and going toward the danger. Now, the, the Spartans, uh, Stephen Pressfield talked about this in his book about the Spartans. The Spartans swore an oath to their shield. Now, I mean, the Spartan warrior, uh, you come home without your sword, no big deal. But you come home without your shield. And here, here's the deal. The, the Spartans went to war with a great big honking round shield. And they formed a shield wall. And the person to your left was using your shield as cover. And, and you're and partially behind the person to your right. You're interlocking fields of fire, you know, interlocking protection. And they were gnarly little guys. We look at the shield, oh, that's a pretty big shield. Now, if they were gnarly, it's even bigger by comparison. And the only way to run was to throw that thing away. So if you come home without your shield, that means you're running battle. So the Spartan mothers and the Spartan wives would send them into battle this command. Come home with your shield or on it. And again, the Pressfield Oath, it goes something like this. This is my shield. I bear before me in the battle. But it is not mine alone. It protects my brother on my left. It protects my city, my county, my state, my nation. Because this city was their nation. And I will never let my brother, my city out of its shelter. And I will never let my brother, my sister out of its protection. I will die with my shield before me facing the enemy. So on 9-11, I, I, I trained the fire service across America. For every cop that died, three firefighters died. On 9-11, 400 immortals, 400 cops and firefighters went toward the danger while everyone else ran away. And you know, cops and fire make fun of each other, but they all, they bear the shield, they, that little chunk of armor on the left side. And, and, why, why we have, and why do we have that? Why is that the symbol of a cop? Or, or the star, you know, and, and some have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten points. What's it mean? You know, well, it's just a reflect. It's it just represents the sun gleaming off the shield. It's another way of saying the same thing on that left side. And you go forth and you bear that shield, that representation of your willingness to lay your life down, and that you are a living shield, the flesh and blood that protects all that we love. And fire and EMS and cops, they all bear that shield on that left side. And they're all willing to walk out that door and lay their life down for strangers. And so the 300 immortals, uh, the Spartans, are worthy of honor. But on 9-11, we had 400 men and women bearing the shield who didn't come home to their family that night. They will never come home again. And, uh, and, and, and sometimes the greatest love is not to sacrifice your life. We're not all called to die in some tragic incident. Sometimes the greatest love is not to sacrifice your life, but to live a life of sacrifice. And that's kind of that culminating point that we try to make about all that. Yeah. All right. To kind of wrap up your whole presentation, your whole story, let's talk about a couple of things that are going to take place in the future yeah. or happening right now. And we're transitioning into them. Yeah. You talk about the new killer in the 21st century. Uh, terrorism, school violence. Yeah. Um, yeah. You talk about it extensively, actually. You've yeah. been on a number of news presentations and things like that. Yeah. I want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about like asymmetrical warfare. I want to talk about cyber terrorism that's starting yeah. to happen because you've written a lot about killing. You've written a lot about combat. Yeah. I think at the end of this GWAT, we're coming into a new era that, one, Warfare has changed at a cellular level, 
Number two, with this cyber, it's going to mean something different. With drones that people can set 10,000 miles away and fly, that is definitely going to change the landscape of combat and of killing. Yeah. And, you know, in the law enforcement community, uh, they're embracing drones. And it transforms what we do. We all know about the taser and pretty effective resource. You know, in, in England, cops don't carry guns, but they carry tasers. You know, and, uh, they, they, They're developing a drone with a multi-shot taser in it. And it's going to be able to go in and do, do things and not put cops in danger. And there's a lot going on out there. That technology will go places maybe we never imagined. But they're embracing that and, and they're coming down that road. When we talk about the terrorist threat, uh, you know, cops are really good at predicting future behavior based on past behavior. Uh, a serial killer is an M.O. He bind, torture, kill the last three victims on a Tuesday. What do you want to bet he'll do the same again? Well, when we look at the current threat, if we want to predict future behavior based on past behavior, one of the major targets is our schools and our children. I, I use the example of Boko Haram across across Northern Africa. The very word Boko Haram. Boko means book, almost any book other than the Quran. Haram means forbidden, a religious word, evil, sinful. The common translation of Boko Haram is Western schooling is evil. The very name of the organization is about heating schools. And across North Africa, thousands of times, schools and daycares are being hit and wiped out. And nothing changed your way of life, nothing changed your behavior, more than somebody coming to kill your kids. I, I talk about the, the Taliban. We've now given them Afghanistan. Now, we hunted the Taliban down like dogs for 20 years. We whacked them with hellfire missiles from predators, hellfire missiles, you know, the fires of hell. We make a religious statement. Every time whack them, we didn't even get it. They get it. And 20 years later, 20 years, we hunted the Taliban down. We whacked them wherever we found them. And then we left. And we gave them an entire nation to fund, and prepare, and deploy. We let them $7 billion in military equipment and a burning desire for revenge. So what's the Taliban do? Well, I talk about an attack in Pakistan where they wiped out an entire school. And the following day, not a single kid in Pakistan went to school and there was a regime change that went in their favor. And just a couple of months later, I wiped out one school. And the message is, you cooperate with America, we'll do this to you every day. In one year alone, I think it was uh, 2009 alone, there was over 600 attacks that we know of on schools by the Taliban. 600 times a year, their own kids in their own school in their own nation, 600 times a year. And the crazy part is, they've been around this block once before. The Russians were in Afghanistan for 10 years. The Russians were brutal. The Russians left and they immediately followed them home. And there were hospital massacres and there were other massacres, but worst of all was Bestland. Uh, September 1st, 2004, they took an entire school hostage. After three days of unthinkable hell, uh, we, had, we had over 300 dead, almost all of them children, uh, over 1,000 uh, hospitalized, and, uh, and a nation stunned to their soul. And, and that, that's, that's what they do. They don't pee in your water. They don't sprinkle dew in your skies. They don't break your computer. They come kill your kids. And, and I think the threat we're looking at and we need to be aware of is, is the threat to our schools and our daycares. Uh, China's seen repeated daycare massacres. Belgium had a daycare massacre. Uh, and, and I told the vice president, I said, I hope I'm wrong. Nobody knows the future. But we're going to be seeing, we've got this steady descent into evil. 
And they got to do something ever more evil to get the media coverage that, that is part of why it's happening. To another elementary school massacre, it ain't going to do it. And we've been around this block. Elementary massacres, right. But a daycare massacre will stun us down to our souls. A school bus massacre will stun us down to our souls. That's what's happening around the world. China's had repeated daycare massacres. Knives, swords, hammers, axes, and daycares and kindergartens. And, uh, and so I pray it'll never happen. But I tell my cops and when somebody goes in that school, it's your job going like thunder and, and, and take a bullet for those kids. In Uvalde, Texas, we had a tragic incident where the cops didn't go in. And, and, and 100,000 cops, I guarantee you, I bet you said to yourself, I wish I'd have been there. I wish I could have gone in and I could have stopped that before those kids died. I wish I had been there. And, and we tell our cops nationwide, it just worked in a, 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 a sheriff, a, a, a Grady Judd in, uh, in Florida, kind of famous. Uh, I, I trained his department and, and uh, he said, you tell my deputies that, that they need to go in with so it's killing those, those kids. You tell my deputies they'll live the rest of life in hell if they don't go in and they need to purpose in their heart right now they're going in. Uh, sheriff uh, Grady Judd, he told me, he said, uh, after Uvalde, he came home and his wife, his wife, look at this. And I said, do I have your permission to share this story? He said, sure. His wife told him, if kids are dying, you don't go in, don't bother coming home. And the hair stood my head. It's asked the Spartan mothers and the Spartan wives, it said, come home with your shield or on it. You don't have your shield, don't bother coming home. And, and, and that's that. That spirit that sustains us. I, I don't use the word warrior all that much. I use that warrior. You know, we talk about warrior firefighters and we talk about, you know, frontline warriors and the war on virus. But if cops use that word warrior, it's evil. Well, truth is, I don't use that word all that much. I talk about sheepdogs. But in the end, we are in a war, the Kiwa. And it could happen on our shores anytime. And we're the only nation on the planet that plays by this rule the military cannot get involved in American soil. Uh, other than the National Guard and the Coast Guard, they showed up no time soon. Our military cannot get involved in American soil. So when the terrorists attack, and they've been around this block once before, they did it to Russia, they did it 600 times a year, their own kids, their own nation, when the terrorists attack, whose job is to go in? It's our cops. They need to be trained, they need to be ready. And right behind them is armed citizens and other people who are truly part of the equation. And need to be trained and need to be prepared. But we've got crazy times all around us. We begin, we give them $7 billion and a burning urge for revenge and an entire nation to plan. And they've been around this block once before. Uh, and our cops are the thin line of heroes that we send in that school when these things are happening. And, and you talk about Afghanistan. I'm pretty sure I heard recently that they have now canceled all, if you are a female in any of the schools there, in any of the colleges, you were immediately taken out. Education was taken away again. One no, thing that you didn't point out uh, with the schools, though, is a homegrown terrorist. We talk a lot about yeah. offshore terrorists. Yeah. But if we look back at, at a lot of the nightclub shootings, school shootings right. here, those are homegrown terrorists. Uh, and and it's a different mind state these days. I, I think that this stuff has happened in the past. There's books on yeah. it that yeah. things have happened, you know, massacres at schools. Now, do you think it's just in our face more because of the media coverage? Or do you think that it's happening more often? 
well, you know, we had the, you know, we, there's this whole continual dynamics. You know, we had the Pulse nightclub massacre. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. And, and that was that was an Islamic individual who was in America, a twisted guy. You know, does he count as homegrown? Or is he an Islamic terrorist? You know, he kind of falls in between. Uh, you know, we've got the kids who are committing mass murders. You know, we, we just had a massacre in a school in Russia. And the news release said it was the fourth school shooting so far this year in that province, in that part of Russia, four times a year in Russia. Finland's had three multiple homicide by Jubala in the school that I know of. Mexico has had a bunch from Brazil's had a much. Canada, the very first double homicide by a juvenile in the school was 1975 in Brampton, Canada. Uh, Canada's had bunches of school massacres. Again, we've got uh, we've got kids, a juvenile committing a multiple homicide in a school. Never happened in human history. Now it's everywhere. There was one in Taiwan. There was one in Thailand. You know, multiple, multiple in Russia. So yeah, this this homegrown killer, the children. Coming to our schools, committing crimes I've never seen before. It's a complex topic. I teach school safety. I teach my cops. But there's, we can stop 75% of the kids committing these crimes, according to the Secret Service. Because in 75% of the cases, they told somebody they were going to do it. And it comes back to see something, say something. It's not snitching. It, it's somebody making a cry for help. The, I don't like to say the name of any of the killers, but the killers in Florida, in the park and uh, uh, the Parkland massacre in the, in in, uh, in in Florida, that guy had posted on the internet that he was going to commit this crime. He had an AR-15. He's going to kill at least twenty people. He's going to go in this school. This this is a clue, and everybody that read that should be repeating it, reporting it to the the cops, and the cops need to follow up. With immediate, uh, there's a, a set of procedures that cops go through. It's it's a cyber crime dynamic. And what we do is we get a search warrant for their their computer and their their cell phone and their home. And, and we immediately go to whether platform they put it on. And let's make doggone sure as a kid who said he was. Because we got kids in America now that are going on platform and claiming to be somebody else and claiming they're going to commit a massacre. But by going and by using the law enforcement network, you can come into any platform and find out who it was who actually said it. And if there's imminent threat of life and limb to others, the cops have not the right, the responsibility to follow up. So there's a new angle on all of this. And as I said, at least 75% let people know they're gonna do it. And, 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 and we can, there's so many aspects of this, hardening the school, training people, having armed response, but being able to follow up on these, this leakage that happens, it's a critical part of the equation. Let's talk about that leakage for a minute, because I want to give you a quote that you said yeah. in On Killing. Yeah. You said, the point here is that there is as much disinformation and as little insight concerning the nature of killing coming from the media as from any other aspect of our society. Yeah. Now, you and I both know when crime happens or when a story happens, the news, the media will get whatever story out to give them the jump on it, to give them the lead with disinformation coming out. I think you would agree that that is a huge problem in instances like this, in school shootings, in acts of terrorism, because all it leads is to more confusion. Yeah. You know, well, uh, and, and we turn the killers into celebrities and they're seeking that as part of the whole equation is, is fame. Uh, you remember the mosque massacres in New Zealand? 
guy went to two different mosques and, and live streamed a mass murder in, in New Zealand. And the, 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 the prime minister of New Zealand said, this man did what he did to be famous. We'll not give it to him. We will never say this man's name. We will never show this man's picture. New Zealand will not even give him his name. Oh, somebody gets it. Make them nothing. Make them nobody. That's that's punishment. And, and the media, I mean, okay, the first day, show us, you know, with the killer of those four kids, you know, off campus. In, 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 Idaho. Yeah. Right. How many times got to see that guy's face? How many times got to take him his name and showing us his face? And now we've got, he's a celebrity and everybody's seen him. You know, that that suicide vest that he was wearing, the vest that you can't turn into a rope and you can't tear up. Yeah, people are online buying those now. <laughs> Where do I get one of those? Those are cool. I want to wear those now. And, and, and the media turns this guy into celebrity. So that, that's, that's a whole part of the equation. This dive into greater depths of evil to get ever more horrific crime to get the media coverage that you need to have. That's, again, I pray that I'm wrong, that daycare massacre, when it happens, that person will break new ground of fame and the media will turn them into celebrity. And, and that, that school bus massacre, I pray that I'm wrong. Uh, we're seeing it around the world. These are the next crime. And the media turns them into celebrities. And it's okay, the first day we've got to talk about why they'll keep seeing his face and hearing their names. Oh, if it bleeds, it leads. Well, then why don't you tell us about a 30% increase in homicides in 2020, almost three times more than anything we've ever seen in history? Why don't you tell us the murder rate's being held down by medical technology? The number of dead people is actually just the tip of the iceberg of the violence that's happening in our society. If it bleeds, it leads. Why isn't that your front page story day after day? The hard thing to explain is not that one in a million terrible crime you heard about today. We're a nation of a third of a billion people. You heard about one crime today. That's one in a third of a billion. You explained to me the 99.9% citizens will go a lifetime and never even seriously attempt to take a life. Explain that. Divorce, infidelity, layoff, traffic accidents. In a lifetime of provocation, less than one in a thousand people even seriously attempt to take a life. Explain that. There is this whole host of physiological, psychological, social processes that restrain violence. If we understand what they are, then we understand how the media is turning them off. And we understand the harm that's being done by turning these killers into celebrities and making the video games available to children, the point-and-shoot simulator. You know, you said, what's the difference between Vietnam and the GWAT? The, the shooting rate is still all the way up, but the hit rate has exploded. Versus Vietnam spray and pay. pray today, today's generation are, are getting great hit rates, and that comes from the simulators. And our militaries have high-quality simulators that are making not just shooting, but hitting the target, a critical piece of the equation. And when these same things are being given to children, adults can do it. Adults can buy tobacco and alcohol and pornography and, 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 and guns. But, but when it comes to giving children these murder simulators, when it comes to feeding them TV and movie and then turning the killers into celebrities and showing the kids every night, time out, time out. Things are more complex. Understand what turns off killing it and understand what turns it on. That's the field of killology that I pioneered. And the critical equation, criminology is not teaching how to be a criminal. Killology is not teaching how to kill. 
It's about understanding those factors that can turn it on and turn it off in society. And we are pushing the gas pedal for violence in our society. So let me play devil's advocate to you one more time. And this will be the final kind of question in this area. Those video games, those violent things, people played cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians, whatever you want to call it. There's been violence forever. And this is someone's argument. There's been violence forever. So if there's been this violence forever, if you played army, if you played violent video games growing up, like I did, why is it more abundant now than it was back then? What has changed fundamentally to make it different? See, this is a core question. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll spot a DJ because that really pulls it all together. In healthy play, whenever someone gets hurt, the play stops. Uh, you know, we played toy guns when we were kids and said, bang, bang, I got you. said, no, you didn't. You smack him with your cap gun. It leaves a mark and he cries. I better gather around the hurt kid, try to convince him not to tell mom. Somebody gets hurt, the play stops. A basketball game, a football game. One of the players gets hurt, the play stops and the fans go silent. The whole game stopped just recently when a player almost died on the field and, and the game stopped. When somebody gets hurt, that play stops. But in the video game, you blow your playmates' heads off. Explosions of blood, they beg for mercy. They, they writhe in pain. Does the play stop? You get points. This is pathological play. This is dysfunctional play. One of the best studies of these killers uh, uh, wrote the book, Inside the Mind of a Teen Killer by Phil Chalmers. He's, he's interviewed these kids, and the one thing they all have in common is obsession with media violence. A secret service agent, uh, uh, Mike Rock, just released a, word, a book, uh, Inside uh, uh, the, the Mind of the, of the Mass Killer. And, and, and he says that the common ingredient keeps coming back to an obsession with media violence, an obsession with violent video games. You say, well, well, well I'm not a killer. When I was a kid, I'd never buckled my seatbelt. I'm just fine. Uh, every single kid I know, nobody buckled, until it became the law, nobody buckled their seatbelt. We're all just fine. You can leave your kid unbuckled for a lifetime, and the odds they'll die is minuscule. But all you got to do is scrape a few kids off the highway and become a believer in seatbelt laws. And because a tiny, tiny proportion will be killed. We got no problem with mandating seatbelt laws. Well, the same thing's true with these games. Millions of people play the game and just be bullies. They'll take pleasure from making people suffer, but a tiny percentage will go on to commit this horrible crime. This is the new ingredient in the equation, this obsession. Yes, why? What's new? This explosion of violence. And one of the new factors is that the violent movies and video games, and again, uh, in the movie, when somebody gets hurt, uh, well, it, 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 do we do we take pleasure out of that, or or or, or the bad guy gets dealt with? But but in healthy play, when someone gets hurt, the play stops. And now, the criminals creating criminal acts are the heroes. And so, they, when when the police use deadly force in, in movies, and, and and the soldiers use deadly force, that's one thing. But now, we've been into a realm where the where the bad guys are are committing these violent crimes, and kids watch this, but it really really hits at peak. And these murder simulators being given to the children. And, and, and again, you know, just because one in a million kids are going to die, mandating seatbelt laws are a pretty good idea. And, and most of the kids don't become killers. They become vicious little bullies who sincerely take pleasure in making people suffer. The bullying in our schools is almost impossible to comprehend. I, I was bullied when I was a kid. It can't be worse. That's worse. 
are the mass murders worse than we were kids? Well, it, the reason it's worse is because it's 24 hours a day now. You can never shut it uh, off. Social media, uh, phones, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the raw numbers, the raw numbers. Like I said, 30% increase in homicides in 2020. The highest we've ever seen was one year in the 1960s with 12% increase. This is this is beyond anything we've ever seen before, DJ. With the, the raw data, medical technology, it's holding down the murder rate. It's actually orders of magnitude worse than it looks. What is the new factor worldwide? This global epidemic of sleep deprivation is part of the equation. The, the scripts that are being fed at a young age, the idea that the criminal is a good guy, the cops are the bad guys, being taught to take pleasure from human death and suffering as you physically inflicted in the video game. Uh, again, you know, none of the school killers were in martial arts. One, a kid in Springfield, Oregon, who uh, dabbled for a couple of weeks, two years prior, and dropped out. He doesn't want to ever in, none of them were in varsity sports. None of them were in martial arts. None of them were paintballers. Paintball, somebody gets hurt, take your mask off, shoot in the wrong direction, boom, the play stops. None of them were competitive shooters or hunters. None of the school killers participated in any structured, disciplined adult behavior. When somebody gets hurt, the play stops. What they did was they immersed themselves completely in this environment of media violence and violent video games and the most famous and the most successful video game in history, Grand Theft Auto V. The year it came out made more money than the entire global music industry. One video game made more money than every rock hunter on the planet, every musician, every CD, every download on the planet. It's in my book, Assassination Generation. Gave a copy to the president, gave a copy to the vice president when I got a chance to meet him. One video game, more money than the entire global music industry, Grand Theft Auto V, and it's a cop-killing murder simulator. So what's the new factor? They want to point at the guns. Well, how are the gun laws working out for Mexico? The whole gun thing is them desperately trying to point the finger somewhere else. Oh, if we only had gun laws, how's that work? Russia, and we just got the news released, had a mass murder in a school, and it's one of five in just the last year, and one portion of Russia, Brazil, Canada, around the globe, kids are committing this crime. Oh, they, they want to point at the guns. It's just them desperately trying to point the finger somewhere else. The new factor around the globe, yes, the 24-hour news cycle, but the actual incidence of violent crime is unlike anything we've ever seen. What is the new factor? The guns have always been there. I throw up a, an M1 carbine on the, on the screen, a, a 30 round magazine, semi-automatic military weapon, M1 carbine. It, 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 don't, why would anybody have a, a multi, you know, a, a, a semi-automatic 30 round magazine military weapon like an M1 carbine? At the end of World War II, they were military surplus. They were junk. You could buy an M1 carbine for 10, 20 bucks a pop. The ammo only worked on one gun on the planet. The ammo was dirt cheap. Why would anybody have an M1 carbine? And yet we made 7 million in World War II. And after World War II, millions were flooded the market. These crimes never happened. The guns aren't new. What's the new factor around the planet? They want some, some idiot from Australia asked Senator Cruz, why is it only happening in America? It's not, you lying dog. It's happening worldwide. Mass murders in Russia and schools. In, like one province, multiple murders in just the last year that we know of. And the media is not reporting it. School bus massacres, daycare massacres across China, do an online search for it. Around the planet, the world is coming unglued. What is the new factor? Think like a scientist. Think like a detective. And the new factor worldwide, we know what it is. The AMA, the APA, the Surgeon General, the Attorney General, a thousand sound scholarly studies have told us violent visual imagery inflicted upon children, especially the murder simulators, the video games. 
inflicted upon children is a new factor around the world. All right, to wrap all this up, important drills that no one's practicing anymore. Talk about what you think it is. You work with this. I'll I'll give you a couple of mine, but you work with these officers. You work with, you see it on a a day-to-day basis, every day when you're checking it. I think one of the important drills that no one's practicing is they don't pay attention to their surroundings anymore. I don't think anybody, well, I won't say anybody, but I think a lot of people don't keep their head on a swivel. Another practice that I don't think people are following is they don't believe that it can happen to them. So let's talk about those two, and then I want you to add one or two on of your own. Yeah. Now, are you talking about citizens, or are we talking about cops specifically? No, we are talking about the normal person, because I think I I still believe that in that military first responder law enforcement arena, I, I think a lot of people still pay attention and, and even more with the heightened sense of the last two to three years, they do it even more. There's almost a hyper vigilance now, but let's talk about your normal person that is your neighbor is the person that works at the school that doesn't deal with this on a day to day basis. Yeah. Yeah, That's really good dynamic. Uh, if they understood how bad it really was, if the news was being given to them straight, uh, I think there'd be a higher level of recognition of responsibility. You know, I train at the NRA every year, and that's one of the things I hate before. You know, they, but these are armed citizens, and and and, and the same thing that cops need to know—they need to know. You're going to get auditory exclusion, you get slow motion time, you get memory gaps, and memory distortions, and and you tell the cop. I use deadly force to protect my life. I want to talk to my lawyer. Cops across America now, they, they, they give a basic security statement and they say, I want to talk to my attorney. Boom. Uh, because this is not the time to be shooting your mouth off. So the average citizen, you're right. Uh, but that's always been true. And I, I know that we grew up, you know, and, and the sheepdogs were rare. We had those World War II vets. We had those Vietnam vets. And, and even the cop. You know, the rookie cop coming in, they don't have that instinct. It's, it's a learned thing. But civilians are teaching themselves now. You know, I, I do a lot of work with concealed care permit holders, and they, they sit with their back to the wall. It's not paranoia. Somebody's got to have the seat with the back wall. It's going to be you. They got the gun. They're alert who comes in. And, and, and they're getting this. this they, they become, and I think this is the key, they become the sheepdog. To become invested, it's just a metaphor. It's, 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 uh, I introduced the concept in On Killing. I took it with, on combat. It's gone viral about the sheep, the wolf, and the sheepdog. But embrace the fact that there are wolves out there. Embrace the fact that you are the sheepdog. My, my wife is, is, a, is a precious little lamb, but it's my job to protect my flock, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, the near future. Uh, I'm the sheepdog. And, and you, you watch the dog, because I love the example of dog. And the dogs always get their head on a swivel. The dog's always looking, the dog's always thinking. Uh, if we're the protectors, if we embrace, embrace that responsibility, then we'll start developing those skills. Instead of living in denial, then we, we live with training and preparation. And, and here's one of the key things. When the sheep hear about some terrible mass murder, they say, thank God I wasn't there. When the sheepdog hears about some terrible, terrible crime, like Uvalde, I think hundreds of thousands of cops said, I wish I'd been there. 
And a lot of concealed care, a lot of sheepdogs say, I wish I was there. And, and that's a sheepdog. You know, it's not a yes or no dichotomy. It's a, it's a, it's a, a continuum. On one end of the continuum is a total head in the, head in the grass sheep. On the other end of the continuum is, a, is, is somebody with, with five combat tours under their belt. You know, and everybody falls somewhere along that line. And, and, and we train and we carry and we prepare and we stay alert so the sheep don't have to. So my wife doesn't have to. I carry a gun so my wife doesn't have to. You know, uh, I think we need to embrace the model. And there's power that comes with that idea of being the sheepdog and truly embracing that. And here's the final thing I'll tell you, because I think it's really important. Uh, I introduce a concept of being God's sheepdog, of, 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 of being God's dog. Uh, I know when we get there, we would be embraced as beloved members of the family. But right now, it's all I can do to envision myself as being God's faithful dog. You know, but uh, a, a wise old man uh, back in, in Will Rogers said, you get to thinking you're a person of some importance. Try telling another man's dog what to do. You ever done that? You know, you, if that dog could talk, you try to tell somebody else's dog, you know what they do? They look at you, and if they could talk, here's what they say. I don't know much. I'm just a dog. I know this. I'm not your dog. And when we have Jesus in our life, the evil one comes to you and look him in the eyes and say, I'm not your dog. And in the end, our nation will fall. Our son will die. Eternity continues. And don't, don't blame God when he doesn't answer your prayers the way you think he should. In the end, Bringing one person to eternity, bringing one person to salvation is the most infinitely important thing on this planet. So get that big picture. Get that spiritual picture. You know, the great survival when you're in your 70s and 80s and 90s comes from the spiritual side of that house. And getting on that side of the house, that is that critical piece and being God's faithful dog. I got a, a dog. She's a chocolate lab. And her purpose in life is to find chocolate, you know, and, and uh, anywhere in the house, and she'll get it off the counter. And if I let her off the leash, she'll get in the neighbor's yard and roll in, in stinky stuff, you know. And, but I love her anyway. I, I, I know that's her nature. God sees all the bad things that we do, and he still loves us. He loves us enough to die for us, to pay the price for our sin and give us heaven and give us eternity with him. And, and, and he sees all the bad stuff that happens. He forgives us. And faith is a choice. And we can choose to believe in a loving God. And it's, I wish it were true. I wish there was a loving God. Well, that is your little seed of belief. Plant that little seed of belief into faith. A man came to Jesus to heal his son. He said, if he had enough faith, anything would be possible. He said, I believe. Help my belief. Boom. Jesus did what he asked him to do. And I tell God, I believe. Help my unbelief. And in the end, like I said, our nation will fall over my dead body. Our son will die. Eternity will continue. And that's where the big battle is being fought. And uh, in the end, uh, everything else pales by comparison. So, DJ, it's been an honor and a privilege to be on board with you and all your listeners out there. And, and thanks for bringing up the different misrepresentations, if you will, and the stuff I do. Uh, uh, they, they attack the cops. They've been attacking me. But, but we're hanging in there, and our cops are hanging in there. And this too shall pass. 
Well, I'm I'm so glad you came on here. I'm so glad that you got to talk about this. Like I said, when I was in the academy, you were brought up on a daily basis. Uh, let's real quickly tell everyone where they can get a hold of you, where they can find you, speaking engagements, all that kind of stuff. Grossmanontruth.com. The Truth on Killing, The Truth on Combat, GrossmanOnTruth.com. As a matter of fact, if you go there now, our, our newest book is on hunting, and it's, it's powerful. It's another whole topic all by itself about what hunting means to us, the lessons learned from it in our past. But you, you can get the book on hunting on Amazon in March. Get it on my website right now, signed by the author. Now, GrossmanOnTruth.com, we've got our online star. We don't even have on, on hunting listed yet, but we, we'll start selling it already. GrossmanOnTruth.com. And uh, when we get a chance, when this is posted, we'll, we'll let people know about it and, uh, uh, and uh, try to get some people coming to the great things you're doing and the great interviews you're doing. Iron sharpens iron, brother, and we'll be able to rock I, on. I absolutely believe that. Guys, uh, this has been an amazing conversation. Make sure GrossmanOnTruth.com. You go there, you can check out all the books. You can get on hunting before it's even released out into the world and signed by the author. So, you know, you guys can always find me. You can find me on Instagram at the DTD Podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD Podcast. You can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD Podcast. But your one-stop shop, it's the DTDpodcast.net. That's where you get audio. That's where you get video. Lieutenant Colonel Grossman's going to have his own page. It's going to have pictures. It's going to have a bio. It's going to have everything that you can think about that you absolutely want to know about this show, about him, and about everything that he's doing. Make sure you stop by our sponsor, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. I tell you every week, they make the freshest ones out there. They ship it to you as soon as it's made to save that flavor. And right now, it's pumpkin spice season. Everybody loves their pumpkin spice. Everyone loves their peppermint mocha. They're both there at policecoffee.com. The big thing about this company, and I want everyone to understand, and this is the reason you need to go there, because 50% goes back to officers who fell in the line of duty to their families. It's an amazing project, and it takes care of us on the backside. So make sure you go there, policecoffee.com. If you put in the code DJK10, you're going to get 10% off your order. So make sure you go check them out. They really appreciate it, and so do I. Let them know that we sent you there. Guys, that's going to be it for this week. Thank you so much. That's Dave. I'm DJ. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.